What do you do at the game table when one person just wants to watch and not play? My name's Jonathan, and this is the Snakes Cast, the podcast for people who don't know as much about board games as they'd like to know. This week, the game gurus from Snakes and Lattes will try to help you find something to do with that one person at your table who refuses to play at all. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Joining me this week once again are Maddie McLean. Hello. And Coco Lee. Hi there. So here's the origin story for this episode. I had a really nice family that I was helping. Four people, a couple of uh, folks in their 20s and 30s, and two people were obviously the parents of one of them. It's mom's birthday. She's really excited about the idea of trying some of these new games. Dad, not so much so. I don't think he said a single word through the entire thing, and the others explained to me that he wasn't going to play. He sat, he sipped his latte, seemed to be fine, but he just was not going to play. I needed a three-player game for a table of four. This doesn't happen. <laughs> at least not, not usually, not at Snakes. It's happened to me before at family gatherings, though. Has that ever happened with you folks? Absolutely. Yeah, fairly frequently. So what are some reasons why people wouldn't want to play games? Why, why, why is that so in, 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 your, in your groups? I think one of the biggest issues is that I come from a very white-collar family where uh, a lot of the time we do very intellectual things. And so when we're playing games, a lot of time people have a fear of looking stupid. Mm. And that's like a big thing for a lot of people, I find, especially when you're when you're introduced to new people and maybe someone doesn't want to play because they're a little bit more intellectually minded or a little bit more self-conscious about being intellectually minded. Or there's always the, the previous board game shame of I failed <laughs> in the past. I feel like I will fail at this game if I try it. Mm-hmm. And I think the previous board game experience can lend to players being really exceptionally skilled at picking up rules really quickly. Uh, and the player who is not terrifically good at picking up rules doesn't want to play because they're terrified of how long it's going to take them to learn. Uh, and so the, that, in addition to feeling as though you're going to be bad at the game or feeling as though you're not going to have any fun. What about hyper-competitive types? Have you ever see them wanting to bow out, not just because they have to win, but because they know they're going to have to win? And that's, that's the reason I don't watch sports. It's <laughs> because I get attached to a team, and when they lose, I lose. <laughs> Boy, it's a good thing you're not a Leafs fan. Oh, not anymore. Oh. oh, that was a thing. It was a thing. That's oh, fine. dear. Well, I'm glad you were able to recover from that. Let's talk about the only good kind of game around. Okay, everybody? <laughs> <laughs> One thing that, uh, that, that, that I've found is a strong factor of this, or at least can be. Do you guys know the, the Myers-Briggs personality type indicator? The Absolutely. Thing where you get those four letters like INFP or ESTJ. I know. I'm an EF- ENFP. ENFP. I, I, I haven't, of all the personality tests I've taken, that's the only one that I haven't. Hmm. But can you enough, explain? That's, that's the only one that I ever found really made it helpful for me to understand why certain people don't think the same way as I do. And the biggest difference in that is between N's and S's, intuitives and sensates. Intuitives are into the big picture. They're concerned with the principles behind things. They're concerned with why and how. Sensates are concerned with reality. They, they're concerned with what is. They're concerned with who, what, where, and when. And somebody who's way down, there's a scale, a sliding scale, but people who are way down on the S end of that scale are very much grounded in the real world. They're concerned with what exists. They're concerned with facts they're not interested in playing games because games aren't real. It's psychology with Jonathan 101. Well, <laughs> uh, the intuitives, by contrast, tend to really love games because they love imagination and things that aren't, don't exist and would never be, but, uh, but are interesting to explore anyway. So here's the big question. The first question you have to ask, if you've got somebody at a table like that, should you try to convince them to join in 
or should you just let them enjoy their spectating? I think it depends on the group. Some groups, I think, will have someone who gravitates towards it. Guru Other Voodoo groups... always does this. Yeah. Every time the big question comes up, it depends on your situation because, yep, it does. It does. Mm-hmm. Normally, I like to force people to play because a lot of people don't realize what they're missing out on. Mm. And a lot of the time, there is usually a game for everyone. Like, even if they're extremely sensate and they like specific things, a lot of those people love Boom Boom Balloon. Right. There's, there's a physicality reality to that balloon that comes right out. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them like gambling games, too, because uh, real money is at stake. Absolutely. Those are two games that I despise heartily. <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I think the only game that I'll actively sit out of is a push-or-luck game. Really? Yeah. I, just, I, a, I always lose, and it makes me sad. Is it and... because you push too far or because you don't push far enough? A little bit of both, a little bit of everything. Whatever it does, whatever's supposed to be done, I do They just wrong. hate you. Yeah, no, it's just never it never works out for me. Coming from someone else who's also chronically unlucky with a lot of these types of games, mm-hmm. I I completely feel you on that. Yeah. I think I think that rather than forcing someone to play, I think what you're getting at though is not is is trying at least to convince them to try something once. Because mm-hmm. often people may have had a bad experience with board games and all they've ever played is some stuff that didn't really work for them. And as a guru, you can show them something that does align with what it is that they're interested in. In this particular case, I wound up going with option B. I'm to spectate. But we're going to look at both of those mm-hmm. in a bit more detail. All right. Suppose you're going to try to lure them in. What are the big things that need to be there? There has to be an attractive quality about why they would want to play this game. Right, such as? Well, something I really like to say is, you know, it has to have a high level of interaction. So something that they can really engage in with everyone else at the table as well. Well, if you've got the hyper-competitive player, you might want to go with something that's a bit more low interaction. So there's less chance they're going to do terrible things. But yeah, absolutely. In the case of somebody who's afraid of looking dumb, low interaction is great because each player's sort of doing their own thing. They don't have to worry about interference from the other players Mm -hmm. and accessibility as well if someone hasn't played a lot of board games and they're concerned about learning the rules or i find often when there's a large age gap the Mm. older players will go i'm too old i'm too old to learn a new game (laughs) so as long as you can avoid being condescending i think the accessibility of the game you choose has a large factor in what you end up teaching them a good trick for that too can be familiarity Mm -hmm. Uh, if there's some if they're concerned they can't learn new games but they're, they're they're bridge players Lots more trick-taking games can leverage the stuff that they already know from having mm-hmm. played Bridge and Hearts and Euchre and, uh, and allow them to try something new, but with a, a sense that they're not completely at sea. I think playing in teams can also be a good way to do this. Absolutely, because then you get the camaraderie of the other people at the table. Mm-hmm. You get the support and you get the success, even if you maybe haven't contributed a lot. And, uh, and you I've... get to take the credit. <laughs> At least some of the credit. You get, to, you get to share in the success and also share in the, uh, in the contributions. And that does a lot to diffuse the kind of anxiety that people can have about this. Mm-hmm. I think low, and, and that brings me to low emotional stakes. The sillier a game is, the more casual, the more light it appears. I mean, if, if it's got bright cartoon characters or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, or a giant balloon. <laughs> can we just stop with the balloons? <laughs> I, that said, though, there's a risk with the low emotional stakes or the silly games that you'll get somebody who's too curmudgeonly to join in. Who's That's going true. to sit with their arms crossed and not be willing to suspend their disbelief to get into the fun of the game. Yeah. With there, <laughs> there's a lot of people who refuse to play kids' games because they don't want to look silly. Especially on first dates. We see that a lot. It's like, oh, I don't those are the best silly. for accidentally, quote-unquote, touching your date. Like, <laughs> oh, sorry, I brushed your hand trying to move this teeny tiny wooden elephant. Yeah. <laughs> And, it's, and, and a game that looks serious can actually do more to draw in somebody who's, mm-hmm. uh, so, boy, 
It depends. It always depends. Always depends. Every time. So what if what if you were going to recommend a game to someone who was sitting out? Or recommend a game to... To try a, to lure them in? No, recommend to a group where the person's just absolutely going to sit out. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of things we could potentially do with that, right? Let's uh, let's let's actually go to that in some more detail. What uh, mm-hmm. rather than going to specific examples, let's talk about the principles behind it. All right, this is the this is what I was faced with in this particular instance. We had somebody he was definitely not going to play. I needed to come up with something that would be entertaining for the players, but also not a big problem for our spectator in that case. Games with low interaction are important in a case like that. If, play, if the players are just interacting with each other constantly, the spectator is going to feel left out. You're such a better person than I because I want to punish that person for deciding not to play. And I want to make sure they see their friends having as much fun as possible without being able to join in with them. See, the, the, seeing the others having lots of fun is what uh, is, is actually something that I want to, uh, to do as much as I can in that case because I don't want them to feel bad. You don't want the players to feel bad. Exactly. I don't want anybody to feel bad, ideally. Right. Oh, no. I, mean, I, 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 I want, want the sitter-outer to feel bad. <laughs> I want them to feel guilty for not joining. And I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. At some <laughs> level, probably. But uh, games with lots of downtime are good for this. Mm-hmm. It gives them a chance to talk. It gives them a chance to... They, they can engage with our spectator. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can, can they even engage with them on a team basis? So that when the one person's like, oh, I won't play, but I'll play on your team. So you can sort of share resources and share information with the one person who doesn't want the responsibility or the sole responsibility of being a player. Sure. In a game that's played in teams, they can sort of drop in and maybe contribute a little here, a little there. Mm-hmm. What about um, what about if they won't play, they won't join in the team, and, and they just want to look at it? Like, I think that the visual appeal of a game can have... Oh, yeah. At least to a certain degree, appease the person who's not playing along because they can look at it go. And games that have beautiful pieces are really good for that. Mm-hmm. Games like Ila Dorado, which I know you love, is oh, yeah. a great spectator game because mm-hmm. not only does it look beautiful, but you get to see your friends arguing, which I just think is... <laughs> I think that's hilarious, but that's just because I... But also other games that where they're doing something interesting. Like games... Traditional games like Jenga are fun to watch because you want people to screw up. Mm-hmm. Games like Balloon. <laughs> games like Escape Curse of the Temple. <laughs> is fantastic because you are watching your friends do all these silly things and roll dice frantically. And in and a lot you of cases, actually... you're watching them fail. Yeah. They're... Hilariously. It... Wonderfully. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then even party games where if someone doesn't want to come in or participate in the game, they can inevitably get wrapped up and trying to figure out what the words are, are that they are trying to guess at. So there's a lot of different ways to make the person feel like they're being involved or at least to get them engaged in something uh, to, while actually being able to be a part of it without being a part of it. I went for the, uh, for the aesthetic approach at this particular case. The game that I brought for them was Splendor. And this is mainly based on the needs of the other three players at the table, the ones who actually were playing. Based it's, on, it's not just that Splendor is probably our go-to game right now. It's there's brilliant. that. It's hugely useful, but it's also really, really pretty. Mm-hmm. It has great art. It's bright. It's colorful. Uh, you don't have to pay that much attention to it when it's not your turn, which means that our fourth uh, person, our spectator, can still be involved socially mm-hmm. in what's going on. It, it seems to go over pretty well. Uh, what games would you guys bring out for that? Uh, one game that I would recommend would probably be Rampage or Terror in Meeple City, as it's known now. Right. Because <laughs> there's just something so unusual looking about the game. It looks unlike every other game on the market. Yeah, you actually have to physically build these towers of cardboard destruction which you will then physically destroy with oh, these fun. big wooden monsters that sounds good yeah i think any game that has a physical component you get to watch your friends fail you get to join in on a fairly if you feel ready to join in you can really simply um i might even go for something um 
with a really simple mechanic. What's it called? Tsuro, yes. where you yeah. uh, you have the, like you have to basically untie. A, that's not the right way to. You're creating this it. little path. Thank you. Uh, yes. Every turn you add a list, you put a little bit more of the path in front of your little plastic piece, and you follow the line. And these lines become these crazy spaghetti curly cues. Mm-hmm. Go around, and if your path takes you off the board, you're out. If you bump into somebody else, you're both out. Mm-hmm. Last of our ways. And there's Sorrow of the Seas, which is even prettier, and Indigo, which I think is probably the prettiest of them all. It's really pretty. It only goes up to four players, but uh, have, you, have you played Indigo yet? No. It's got this wonderful sort of uh, Turkish design to it. It's mm-hmm. really beautiful, and again. It's the same sort of paths that you see in Suro, but there are these bright colored gems, many of them on the board, and you're trying to steer them off the board on your side. Okay, cool. And uh, the other thing, too, which I think might be a bit uh, helpful in the case of our reluctant player, is that several sides of the board are going to be shared by more than one player. Mm -hmm. So if it goes out in this section, then the red player and the purple player both get a copy of this gem. Mm -hmm. It goes on that side, the red player and the white player both get a copy of this gem. And there's something can be oddly satisfying about the person who's sitting back and watching everything happen yeah. if they can figure out what's happening before the players can as well. True, true. And especially in games like that where you're not holding a secret hand of cards, you, you see everybody's pieces and you see everybody's Open position in front of you. And that way you can, you can root for whichever player you're sitting next to or not sitting next to. But also giving games that are fast as well, mm-hmm. because then they also get the visual diversity, which is kind of fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like I would much rather if it, there was a table like that, say a table of three with two player games, I would bring them a ton of abstracts because mm-hmm. not only are they interesting to look at, but they're interesting to try to figure out from an outsider perspective to see what the other people are doing. Games like Quarto or Corridor or even Batik. Pentago. Pentago, mm-hmm. which is really probably good. my go-to game when I'm at the wall. It's play this. It's Connect Five. It's just <laughs> and the multiplayer one has those nice. It's got those bright colors, that accessible yeah. play, and the open information. Any other thoughts on what to do when you've got a spectator at the table? Punish them. Let them deal with it. <laughs> Be we... nice to them. Come on. <laughs> we. Uh, my family is in the twelfth round of our Risk Legacy game. Oh wow! <laughs> but two of us are left out forever. And they are so excited for us to finish our 12th game of Risk. (laughs) (laughs) Were they reluctant to join in at first and now they're regretting it? Is that what happened? No, no. They just want us to stop playing because we we bring it to Mexico with us. Like we try. It's (laughs) embarrassing. They want us to stop dragging around this Risk board because they never wanted to play Risk in the first place. And now that they've heard all the yelling and fighting about it, I think they're confirmed in their beliefs. (laughs) But then there's also games like that have an interesting story behind them as well. Tales of the Arabian Nights is almost as oh, fun to yeah. listen to your friends play. Like, cool. I haven't played Agents of Smirsh yet, but you speak Imagine highly of Imagine Tales of the Arabian Nights mixed with Pandemic in a silly 1960s British spy movie. So... Brilliant. Brilliant. But, like, just hearing the stories that happen. Mm-hmm. Some of my favorite uh, inside jokes between me and my game guild are games around Tales of the Arabian Nights. Because I remember there was a friend we had who ended up in jail in this game and then she had to put makeup on the the bodyguard and attempt to escape and then the bodyguard liked the makeup so much that he made him stay to put makeup on every day so it's just <laughs> it has these funny little stories in there that become hilarious mm-hmm. it's, in, in a sense everybody at the table playing Tales of the Arabian Nights is a spectator alright that wraps it up for this week we hope that was helpful for you if you have any curmudgeonly non-game players in your groups give them a sense of what they're missing, or at least to have some fun alongside you. If you've got an unusual group of players with a mix of different tastes, and you'd like to see the gurus do some recommendation voodoo on them, poke us on our Facebook page or tweet it to at SnakesCast. We're always up for a challenge. We'd love to hear from you. Coco, Maddie, thanks for coming on the show with me. Game on. Thank you, Jonathan. SnakesCast is produced by P.T. Douglas. Music is provided by Ben Sound. The opinions expressed on the show belong to the people in it and not the company behind it. 
See you next week, folks. Game on.